I think data gets a bad rap. There needs to be like an understanding that your data is out there and it's being moved around every day. I would really like to kind of get ahead of that and control how it's used. Welcome back everyone to Hidden in Plain Sight. It's been a wild few months. I've been doing my best to read and study historical trends and I found something interesting. After almost every pandemic in history, there was disruption. However, there was also an eventual renaissance that followed the plague or the pandemic. In order to get to that renaissance, though, we need to expand our perspectives. To do that today, we're talking with the renaissance man, Mick Bacho, a security advisor at Splunk. Mick's career spans the globe. He got his start as an information war specialist for the Navy. After that, he worked in InfoSec at many private companies, including places like Lockheed Martin. Next, Mick went back to the public sector and helped protect information and data at places like the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the FDA, and at the Executive Office of the President. From there, Mick became the first CISO on a presidential campaign for Pete Buttigieg. In today's episode, we talk about what Mick learned from his global experiences in the public and private sectors. We also discuss how he navigated through those to find his new role as a security advisor at Splunk. Enjoy. This season of Hidden in Plain Sight is brought to you exclusively by our friends at Splunk, the data to everything platform. Splunk helps organizations worldwide turn data into doing. It's time for data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Learn more at splunk.com or by clicking the link in our show notes. Mick, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I'm excited to talk to you when an introduction comes through via email that has as many keywords uh, like yours. I tend to perk right up. And when we got on the phone call to discuss, it was fascinating to learn about you and your background. I'm not going to go too much into it right now because I want you to share your story with us. This is a show called Hidden in Plain Sight. And I think with a man who has a, as varied a background and career as yours, you've discovered quite a bit of things that are hidden in plain sight. So welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here and I'm looking forward to it. So Mick, you have a background in cybersecurity as a veteran uh, among many things. How did you get your start as you know a warfare information specialist in the Navy? If you could take us back to, uh, I don't want to date you here, but when you, when you got your start, take us back to those early days and what was going on. I started in the Navy in 1994. And I was actually going to be a nuclear engineer. And the day I joined the Navy is the day I found out that I'm colorblind. And the Navy has this big thing about nuclear engineers need to see colors. And I was like, it makes sense. So I got into computers then in the Navy and kind of didn't look back. Um, real thankful for my time there on the USS Saipan, uh, decommissioned ship now, and the uniforms changed. So it's, it's weird. Uh, but I started off the Navy, then kind of... Bounced around a bit, uh, did some work at Iridium, satellite cell phones, you know, ended up in the government when Health and Human Services was building a team out uh, for their CSERC, the Computer Security Incident Response Center. Uh, it was based out in Atlanta. And that was the department-wide uh, uh, computer incident response for health and human services. So it was really, really unique. And I learned a lot from some great people there. Uh, went moved from there to CDC uh, in Atlanta, 
at the Centers for Disease Control is on their incident response team, then spent some time at Food and Drug running uh, security operations there, and some time at the Pentagon incident response and health and human services, again, to build out a threat intelligence program um, with some, some friends there. And then that was during the rollout of healthcare.gov, the Affordable Care Act. And then from there, I spent 40 days at the Library of Congress uh, before going to the White House. It was great. It was a great opportunity. Jumped at it. And uh, it was just a weird conversation. It was just talking to the CISO at Library of Congress a weekend. Hey, look, thank you for the job. This is great, but I'm going to have to go now. <laughs> That's a quick 40 days, but you know, you only get a call from the White House every so often, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and the call was a weekend, but you know, you know, government being government, sometimes paperwork just gets slowed. Um, it took a little bit longer for me to actually transfer between the, the agencies. Uh, so that was just awkward hallway moments. You know, hey, I thought you were leaving. I'm working on it. Uh, but it was, it was a great time. And the folks there are super, super sharp. And, and White House spent uh, some time there. The, um, you know, year, last year or so of the Obama administration and uh, first year and a half or so of the current administration. Um, so over the 2016 election, the transition, everything uh, after the inauguration, and that was definitely a unique experience. After that, I, I actually ended up at an instant response for a while, then spent some time at Verizon and got a call in June, I guess around June of last year, from the Buttigieg campaign to come run security for them, information security program, be the first CISO in the history of presidential campaigns, which is just bonkers to think about still. Um, bonkers in a sense of we haven't had CISOs before this or that it was just, you know, an incredible time to be kind of pioneering there. All of the above and then some. Uh, first, it was, wow, like, really? Like, no one's ever done this? I feel like someone should have, you know, someone should have uh, done this before <laughs> right. or there should be more than one of, you know, me on a campaign. Um, and that just wasn't the case, or at least in the house. So the Bridges campaign uh, did that. And, and one, it was, you know, wow, no one else is doing this. Two, um, I feel horribly underqualified for this. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty big, pretty big thing. And to have that, you know, on your shoulders, it was just a lot of pressure. And I, th I think mostly put it on myself, but that's kind of what you do, um, getting your head about it. And man, I, I'm, I'm not qualified for this. I'm not good enough for this, but, um, you know, talked to a lot of friends and they were like, look, you got called for a reason. And that was just a really, really unique opportunity. And I think, um, taking what I learned in the federal space over a career and kind of transitioning that to the campaign, it was a really, really great experience. And I learned a lot about people and a lot about security and just overall implementing a cybersecurity posture and program, what people do and won't do. Um, you know, you can look in the paper, uh, Google it and Google me and hit news. And my departure wasn't as quiet as I would have liked it to been, uh, but things happen the way they happen. And I'm over at Splunk now and, and I'm really, really thankful to be over here. My first introduction to Splunk as a company was when I was down at the CDC in Atlanta. 
And I had a really good friend come over to Splunk about five years ago and watch the company grow and all the really cool things they're doing. I was like, yeah, man, I'll come work over here. I'll do that. It's awesome. Um, so here I am. So it's, it's a really, really great opportunity uh, being a security advisor here, just kind of helping folks out, solve their security problems and age of data. I can't think of anything around me that doesn't emit some kind of data, whether it's my phone, computer, computer number two, computer number three, tablet, you know, just all the nerd stuff around me that just generates some kind of data. And uh, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. So being able to um, figure out how to use that, it's one of the things I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to doing here. It's a massive problem to say the least or opportunity, however you choose to look at it. Mick, I'd really be curious to take us back to, you know, the campaign you were working on. And you mentioned that you learned a lot about people uh, as well as just, you know, the security world in general, or maybe everything that you learned before kind of coalesced into the security work you were doing for the campaign. But when, let's start with people. So, you know, what did you learn about people as you stepped onto that stage uh, in a more, you know, like public facing role? I think one of the things I learned most uh, on the Buttigieg campaign, when I, when I say people, I mean um, internally, you know, running a program and, and just how that bounces on people and how that lands and working with others in, in a way that I, I just generally hadn't been used to because of my government role. Um, you know, the Buttigieg campaign full of fantastic staffers and it was a pretty progressive campaign. And my idea behind, like, I don't do politics. I've been really, really clear about that, mostly because I think I'm just too ignorant to understand political views and debate them. So I just generally don't. Like, I have mine and I care about them. But whatever you believe, whatever gets you through the day, that's awesome. But one of the big things was that I learned and it's really, really weird because I grew up, you know, a uh, military brat, joined the military. So very traditional, uh, um, you know, roles of, of masculine and, and what, you know, what those mean. And the big thing for me on the Buttigieg campaign was pronouns. Like that was a completely new thing um, to, to be in an environment where it was just, hey, look at the end of your, your Slack profile, you know, as an option, put, put your preferred pronoun behind it. And that was just a weird thing for me because I didn't have any experience or understanding of it. And the folks I talked to, um, I was, you know, I felt a bit like a bit Archie Bunkerish. I was a lot, a bit older than most folks on, on staff. So I was like, Hey, look, my questions, I want to be real clear. Um, they're coming from a place of ignorance, not, not anger or, or division or anything like that. I just don't get it. So someone explained it, you know, what it means. And like, um, yeah, Mick, you got to he, him, and, and that's your jam, and you, you, you project that, and you, there's no question. But you doing it, putting it in your profile, might make someone who's not as comfortable, you know, to put it in theirs. And I, I never looked at it from that perspective before, and, and just, you know, it really resonated. And I was like, oh, yeah, it does make sense. And, and just learning small things um, just about how different people have lived and you know, I've always valued those experience over, over, um, a lot of other things, just, you know, interacting with people, learning new, new things, um, and just how to kind of be more effective in the workplace and how to communicate more effectively and wise, uh, the wise have always been a big thing. And I think that was really, really great there to learn. I love that. When you were, you know, at the campaign, you were there for about seven months. That's a really dynamic environment where, you know, every single day there are stories being published. There's a lot of real-time information. As CISO of something like that, that is, 
you know, heavily focused on messaging, on PR. How do you go about, you know, managing all of that that's, you know, consistently coming out? And what was your philosophy as a CISO, uh, you know, on the first CISO in the history of presidential campaigns? How are you building that up as you went? I kind of put everything into three big buckets, you know, and like what I can worry about, what I can't worry about. Um, when you look at the whole security spectrum when it comes to, to politics, you really have the discourse manipulation part, you know, the IO campaigns. That is, I, I can't do anything about that at all. All right. That's, that's more folks that are smarter than me are handling that problem as best they can. Um, when you look at the hardware of the election systems themselves, what the EAC is responsible for, um, that's not my area. That's the EAC and, and, and they're kind of hamstrung by not being a, a regulatory agency, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, so me, it was just the internal cybersecurity campaign, you know, is are the emails we're sending out getting insecure? Are phishing emails getting stopped? You know, are we... Um, encouraging people to set up to multi-factor and all the things they have um, and just, you know, kind of be more cognizant of not just cybersecurity, but operational security, communication security, just all those different things that kind of coalesce into keeping a, a presidential campaign as secure as it can be. Because part of the job is, you know, you're a campaign. You want to reach as many people as you can and, and tell them about how great your candidate is. So that's kind of the hard part is reaching as many people, but being secure about it. Sure. And when you were at the White House, you were a branch chief for threat intelligence uh, at the executive office of the president. What's that mean if you could unpack that role for us? And could you just, I know some of the work is probably classified. Is there anything that's not classified that you can share with us uh, that you were working on there? We provided the technical um, reporting of items of interest from generally nation state cyber threat actors. I know it's a lot, it's even more to unpack. So when you think nation state, everybody knows what a nation state is. Basically, it is authorized offensive computer exploitation, computer network exploitation activity at the direction of a government. Okay. Uh, so, hey, this is what Group X is doing. This is what we think they're targeting. This is how it affects us. This is why it is of concern to us. Uh, one of the other things that we were able to do a lot was when the principals, the, the president or the vice president would travel overseas, uh, we would, the team would develop a, a threat briefing, a comprehensive threat briefing on where they were going, what they can do from a technical level. Um, and I, mean, I thought that was hugely successful. Um, and a lot of other stuff that obviously, you know, kind of falls in the realm of, um, network defense and stuff I can't talk about. Sure. When you are going about learning for a role like that, how is that even possible? Is there, you know, are there a couple of resources you're going to, are there any like trusted advisors or are you just, you know, surrounded by people who are all learning on the go? What's that process like? I have a pretty non-traditional background as far as how I got into the role. I really don't know if I'd recommend threat intelligence as like the starting point for someone to get into for a career. It can be done, but I think, you know, fundamental um, concept and principles of security, then moving into that, it, threat intelligence is pretty specific and it depends on where you are too. And you're only as good as the visibility that you have. Uh, but as far as getting into security, I think there are 
just an infinite number of resources out there that will help you kind of figure out what you want to do. I think the biggest thing with security is figuring out what you want to do inside security because it's so broad. So, so many different things you can pivot on, whether it's a blue team, you know, your, your network defense folks, uh, your red team, your, your offensive um, penetration testers, uh, engineering folks that, you know, de- development. There's so many different facets to get into. So I think kind of figuring out where you want to go and finding someone, hey, look, this is what I want to do. I think Twitter's a great resource out there and just find that group that kind of meshes into what you want to do and get those resources. I think in information security, people do want to help. And I think there's a growing number of organizations and groups that kind of connect you to the things, the things you want to do. Right. So is your group now, you know, there's a lot of folks at Splunk you're working with. Uh, how do you go about kind of like keeping that group fresh and maintaining your, uh, you know, your conversations with them and everything like that? Now, mostly online, text, Slack, email, things like that. Before it was just, it, it's really the social networking aspect. Um, you know, a friend of mine calls it the meat space. Uh, the conferences we go to, the just the conversations we have, the things we learn, the talks we attend, uh, the webinars we we watch, um, you know, the chats inside there. I, I think just the the soft skills, the meeting new people, uh, that will take you as far, if not farther, than the technical skills in your career is just the people that you meet along the way. Like I've been in security for a long time, um, and the folks that. I remember, you know, coming up with are, are now the CISOs at, you know, pretty large companies. And, and it's just amazing to watch that, the career growth and progression of your friends. Um, you know, it, it's really great to see. So I think your, 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 your social network, your, your soft space, um, maintain that and keep growing that as much as you can. When you are going through your career journey and like when, when you're thinking about it now, from that 30,000 foot view or however you want to think about that, you have a lot of experience in both the public and the private sector. Often we're like told to think that they're very different entities or they're just, you know, entirely different ways of, of thinking, of doing things. Did you encounter a lot of, you know, major differences? How should we be thinking about like the difference between public and private work these days when our lives are increasingly, you know, relying on technology, on digital communication? Um, did you see a stark contrast between these two spaces or are they slowly becoming more similar? I think they're slowly becoming, I I do think they're slowly becoming more similar. And the biggest thing that I've noticed and I've kind of been on the soapbox for a while is I think the ongoing, um, failure of the public sector to address like a work from home environment throughout the course of my career really has hamstrung them where in the private sector, Hey, look, you're going to be at home. And I think the federal government is catching up really quick just by, you know, virtue of they kind of have to. Um, but I, I just don't think they were really ever going to adopt that. And I think that's the world where we're moving towards. Um, so I think they have gotten better. I think it's also a maturity thing. I think in the public sector, uh, it's definitely a more mature security stance in a lot of areas, whether that's too rigid or not is another conversation. But I think that framework is there um, in the public sector uh, at a more mature level. Uh, my, my experience in campaigns, I think campaigns are 
political campaigns are the same, you know, when they're, they're definitely ready for cybersecurity. You know, I think they want that need. I think all companies do. I think all people do in general they want to be secure in what they're doing. Um, but don't make it complicated and don't make it hard for me to do my job. For sure. And that's, that's the balance of cybersecurity in general is that operations to security, finding that middle ground. For sure. And for everyone listening out there, are there any simple steps to becoming more secure that people can implement today? Like what's the low hanging fruit that you see as so obvious and most people aren't doing it or what is some uh, simple ways to get started? I think when you look at SANS, I think SANS is a really, really great, like top 20 things you should be looking at. Um, they're, they're, they're critical controls. Uh, and I had this conversation earlier today with, with some friends. Um, friend just wrote a blog about phishing and the, the effectiveness of like a phishing program. And, and it goes back to, you know, your security program overall, being hard on people. You know, traditionally you, you, you get a phishing simulation at work. All right. I will send out some phishing emails to people, a bunch, some will click on it. And the people that click on it, I'll make them attend more training. Right. That's generally like rinse and repeat. That's what we do. And I don't think that's effective. I, I think, you know, shaming people and hey, you clicked on that. You shouldn't have, I think it's to figure out the why, um, and the program. And, and I think it's the bigger thing on security is just making it easier like we all know links are bad and we shouldn't click on them, but people are gonna. So how come security hasn't made the link safe yet? That's a very interesting perspective and question. So you mentioned not shaming people. For many of us noobs out here that aren't as familiar with the security world, it can feel like, you know, there are these obvious things that we have to know. What are some tips you have for other CISOs or people in the data space who want to teach their organizations and teach their culture without shaming folks that are noobs in the space? I think uh, there are, is a growing, I guess, I, I guess growing vertical in the space. And a lot of companies I've seen popping up, they're kind of gamifying security. And one of the things I think uh, we, we had did a phishing exercise and I had folks from department A, hey, you think of some things that folks in department B would fall for in a phishing email and, and have that back and forth. People get more involved in the, in the process. Um, you know, I, I think kind of making your, your security more accessible, finding that middle ground and explaining a lot of what you're doing, whether it's rolling out, you know, hardware tokens or a new security policy, kind of explaining it as plainly as you can and as transparently as you can the why and the, the, the how, you know, and what, it, what they get out of it. Sure. And when you're thinking about the why for the work you're doing at Splunk, can you take us through some of the things you're thinking about on a daily basis or what's it like being a security advisor to a large publicly traded company that's focused on the data world? So a lot of it is um, making the trains go, right? From an operations, whether, whether it's using uh, Splunk or, or Phantom, um, you know, making the trains go and then making the trains go faster. We're constantly finding new and efficient ways to take the data that you have and either shape it the way that uh, it helps you see it more effectively. One of the big things, you know, since everyone is kind of working from home now is RWI, the, the remote work insight. You know, basically, hey, look, here's, here's all your, your stuff you're seeing at home, all the data uh, that the network engineers are seeing, and I can kind of look at that at one centralized place, and this is what's good, this is what's bad. And it's a high-level overview, but I think it, it's 
it's really, really great the things that you're seeing we're able to do with data. Um, so I think solving a lot of the problems that people are having uh, from a security perspective from, you know, hey, look, we're collecting our DNS logs, you know, our, our name resolution logs. What could we do with that? Um, or, okay, you, I keep hearing that I should be analyzing all my email that comes in and looking for those phishing emails and things like that. How do I do that using Splunk? Or how do, once I do it using Splunk, can, can I make that faster? Can I save my analysts a little more time so they can work on the bigger problems that I have? I like it because it's a new problem set all the time. Mm -hmm. They're all security problems, you know, uh, but, but it's, it's slightly different variations on, hey, I want to solve this. How do I do that? And having that knowledge and that background um, from, from years experience has been super helpful. And, and I think I've done a pretty good job of that. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more. Very cool. And I think it's really interesting. You know, you're a veteran. I have a soft spot. I, I am one myself. And for veterans in the technology world, what are some, uh, you know, perspectives or advice you have for veterans who want to navigate into the tech world or maybe just become more successful? They're already in it and they want to take some of their knowledge that they've learned in the military or maybe just like a capacity to embrace the suck and start employing that in the tech world. Any tips for them? Yeah. If you find a company out there that you want to work for, odds are there's a veteran that works there too. Or reach out to that. Or they might even have a program specific to veterans. I, I know there's, um, there's tons of groups out there that are, aren't attached to any specific company or organization. They're just, you know, I want to help veterans become cyber professionals. Um, and, and those exist. And I know specific companies have those same programs. Um, and if you can't find one, find me, you know, no hack me on Twitter and, and I will set you up. Any veterans that are out there that are looking to get in the cyberspace, there's definitely opportunities and programs out there. Um, and if you can't find it on your own, I don't know, find me and I'll help you out. I love that. Mick, what, what are some of the big learning experiences you had in the military that you still take with you or you think about on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, or maybe just, you know, every so often in your current role, uh, anything that you're meditating on? So I was in the Navy. I was on an amphib, uh, LHA. It's an amphibious assault. Uh, it was me and around 2,000 Marines. And it takes around two weeks to cross the ocean because you do what's called gator squares. So in that two weeks, you're kind of staring at water. You learn a lot. You kind of reflect. I think the military is just a fantastic experience. I don't know like 100% if I'd recommend it for everyone. Just because I was in the Navy. The Navy's a lot of, you're at, you're at sea for a long time. You know, it's, it's, uh, if you've got a family, it might not be for you. Um, but I, I valued it more than any experience because at the time I think it was what I needed in my life. And I, I still keep in touch with some of the, some of the guys I served with, um, and to watch their careers grow. I think that, um, sense of camaraderie and teamwork, uh, learning that at a young age in the military, I think has, has really, I hope, um, allowed me to, to instill that in others. And it, you know, my, my role in the military, uh, I was a computer nerd and, and a relatively new computer nerd field. So, uh, I, I hope I was able to teach folks and, and be able to, to, you know, carry that forward. I think the experiences I had were super unique and super amazing. I got to see parts of the world that 
I ordinarily would never go to, mostly because you know they're they're port towns that the Navy can visit, um, and I wouldn't go there for vacation. But that's a whole other thing. Now, I'm really really thankful for the time there. I, I think um, the camaraderie and I think the discipline. You know, the Navy is an honor, courage, commitment. It, it kind of sticks with me. So I guess the uh, the core values really kind of instilled and carried through. Definitely. Yeah. The, uh, the army, you know, different place, but the, uh, acronym, you know, leadership, the core values are always relevant. And I find myself thinking about them from time to time. Right. Like that's, that's going to stick with you forever and ever. Right. Just, yeah. You can't really escape it. And there's like always these stories in your career that kind of map to each one, each letter of the acronym that you think about from time to time. So Mick, when you think about building that camaraderie in the world of private companies and the security space, what things could the security or data industry, maybe just the tech industry as a whole, be doing to kind of foster a more you know, fun culture? How do we take some of that uh, camaraderie and esprit de corps that you and I probably both felt from time to time in the military? How do we bring that to other people in the tech world? I think data gets a bad rap in a lot of ways, just because there needs to be some kind of, I don't want to say reckoning, but there needs to be like an understanding that your data is out there, you know, whether it's your phone, whether it's your computer, whether it's your tablet, um, whether it's any social media or email account you have, like your personal data is out there and it's being moved around every day. I would really like to kind of get ahead of that and control how it's used and put limitations on how it's used. Like you're going to have a Gmail account, right? You're going to use Google in some way. You're going to use Microsoft in some way, but you know, that giving them carte blanche access to your data is kind of just, it's a little off-putting. Sure. So maybe setting up some boundaries is like the first step to getting to a more like some type of esprit de corps for the industry? I think so. You know, I think um, like data collection is a thing that happens. Uh, Your data is going to get pushed around these companies. And I think um, establishing that sense of trust, like, hey, we're not going to screw you over. Like we're going to make a couple bucks, but like we're not going to, here's our line. Right. right. And as, as long as that's defined and accepted and understood, then we can all kind of kind of move forward and have a better understanding of, hey, we're all in this together. Um, I think there are bigger things when you look at data to worry about uh, when you look at like the arguments against encryption, you know, or the CARES Act or there are things like that. Um, I think everyone who's in the data space, as soon as they hear that, everyone's on the same page. And I think being able to keep that momentum uh, would be super great. I just, I'm open to ideas. Sure. And when it comes to your thoughts about where the tech industry is headed, are there any bright spots you see on the future? I mean, so often we fall into this trap. It's easy in quarantine, right? Of doom and gloom or pessimism. What type of bright spots do you see on the future of the tech industry? I think the research, I mean, like the doom and gloom part, I get it. It's a global pandemic. But when you look at the research that's being done towards the pandemic um, and the pace that's being done and the advances being made um, at such a, at such a quick pace are really, really impressive. That's only going to get better. I think when you look at, you know, technology that are moving forward, I think we're going to see a lot of the adoption of virtual, like uh, I guess augmented I think, you know, us being at home a lot, kind of, I've seen a few conferences pop up now that are in VR, you know, strap on your Oculus, sign up, go do that. I think I'll see a lot in that space. I think you're going to see a lot in machine learning, AI. Um, I think the world's going to drive the technical advances. You know, I think the things I would have said a year ago 
wouldn't be the same as they are now. Right. And if you were to offer your earlier self any pieces of advice or maybe, you know, some of the wisdom you've learned from mentors throughout the years, what would you try to pass back to yourself or pass back to somebody that's just getting their start in the industry? Your soft skills. I think your soft skills will carry you very far. Um, you know, if you're going to go into cyber, you're going to put it into work. I mean, that's kind of why you get in the field. Like cybersecurity is not easy by, by any means. Like it is a technical field and it constantly changes. Um, and you got to like the puzzle. You got to like the, the, just the curiosity. You just got to have that, that mindset if you're going to get in the field. Um, because that part's not going to go away and not going to change. So I think your soft skills, I think, um, all those technical things that you learned, you know, all, all those zeros and ones that you found uh, more research on than anyone else, you've got to be able to explain that to a non-technical crowd, to a non-technical audience and communicate effectively. And I don't think it's, you know, it's kind of um, a cybersecurity specific thing, but I think it's any industry is be able to communicate what you need to effectively. I remember um, at the White House when we would, generate some of our reporting or we would pass up, uh, we'd condense maybe six or seven different reports into a one paragraph summation that you had about three minutes to explain. So, you know, be clear, be concise, get your point across. I think that carries you super, super far. And enjoy the experiences along the way. Meet the people along the way. I've met some super, super interesting people, um, you know, between the government, between being a goon at DEF CON, between being active in a lockpicking community. I, I've just met some of the most fantastic people on the planet. Um, so enjoy that along the way. I love that. And Mick, is there any final call to action you have for our listeners or folks out there that are looking to really, you know, attack some of the major problems we see in the world? There needs to be more focus on the, just our, our political space. And it's hard to get cybersecurity and politics without making it political. You, you should vote for a candidate based on their policies. You, not whether their email was secure, whether, you know, they, their email was compromised or put online. I think um, vote for them as, as a candidate based on their policies because you need a standardized, you know, campaign play or cybersecurity playbook in politics. I think voting online, absentee balloting, again, these, these are huge, huge problems that we only seem to really care about when there's a general election, but not, you know, not during anything in between. Right. At the local level too, is where you can, you know, bump shoulders and get to meet some of those fascinating people that you alluded to and, you know, really move the needle. So, but that's the thing, right? Like, you can elect the president. That's great. But the pothole to end of your street, president, exactly. not going to fix that. Exactly. So your local level, get more involved. Um, odds are your candidate that you might like can't afford cybersecurity. Uh, they just don't have the money. If you've got that talent, you know, volunteer, help out. Um, our election systems themselves, again, like I said, I don't care who you vote for, just go vote. But figure out now who you're going to vote for, how you're going to vote. You know, in November, you might not have the opportunity to go vote in person. So if you don't, you know, do you know now how you're going to vote in November? Powerful words. And it's been awesome talking to you, Mick. Thanks for being generous with your time. And to everyone listening, we will see you next time. 
I'm Sophia Bush, and you've been listening to Hidden in Plain Sight from Mission.org. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Splunk, the Data to Everything platform. In today's data-driven world, every company, big or small, new or old, is sitting on terabytes of unused, untapped, and unknown data. Splunk helps turn all that data into action. Using cutting-edge AI and machine learning, Splunk delivers real-time predictive insights that will help you on your mission to change the world. With solutions for IT, security, Internet of Things, and business operations, Splunk empowers people to make faster, better decisions and take action to get things done. It's time for our data to be more than a record of what happened. It's time to make things happen. Check it out at Splunk.com.